You're listening to the B Fox and B Frank show. Great episode for you this week. Uh, later in the show, we've got Nick Zeisloff joining us for a great interview. Um, really, really fun career up and down. Um, and I honestly, I feel like we only scratched the surface with him. Uh, I feel like we could have gone on for a lot longer. Yeah, it feels like one of those things where uh, we'll, we'll have to talk to Nick again in the the future here because there are so many things. I mean, questions just keep bu- kept bubbling up from his answers, and we could have gone so many different directions. But I think we got a lot of good info out of him, and there's certainly a lot more that we can talk about. We, yeah, we didn't get to talk about the time that his high school team held Jabari Parker's uh, scoreless, but just want to give that a quick shout out. That's, um, that is true. We... We just are recording this now, right after watching Last Dance, um, episode seven and eight. So let's start there. Um, you're saying before we started recording, a little more emotion this week um, than we've seen, I guess, in the the first three weeks of this. Um, and I, I mean, it, it did definitely paint Jordan as more more human. Certainly, had, I'm struggling to find the words because it's yeah, not not just this. This fiery guy, this sort of tyrant pushing people on the court, but that he he did have a softer side as well. Yeah, it goes from stoic competitor who's just like statue esque in that he he's always stern and wants the best out of his teammates and like pushes people to get there and will do anything. I mean, we even saw with the uh, LeBradford Smith story that he'll just create things out of thin air to give himself a little edge. And I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago, is that he will come up with or or look at things in a way that he gives himself that gives himself a competitive advantage or gives himself a fire to build a competitive advantage. And we we saw that, but we also saw the very human and raw emotional side of him that really during his life and during his playing career wasn't seen too much. Yeah, and obviously his his father's death was, you know, kind of that that watershed moment, and of course winning the uh, the finals against the Supersonics on Father's Day after he had lost his dad really mm-hmm. brought all those emotions to a head, um, understandably so. But yeah, even in that series, like you're saying, he will find a way to you know be put off by someone like. Thing you think about is like the the George Carl thing. Like yeah. just walks by in the restaurant, doesn't say hi. He takes offense to that. Even if the opposite happens, there's like some some conversation. Carl maybe comes up to him, and you know there's some perceived slight in that conversation. Or Jordan is just upset with him for like coming up and interrupting his dinner. Like right. they would have done something anyway. Right. It's just it's just such a no win proposition. If you are if you are playing Michael Jordan. In a series, you need to stay away from anywhere that he can see you. You don't want to look at him. You don't want to say anything that could be perceived as being negative or taken as a slight against him because he will take it, he will twist it, he will turn it, and use it against you so hard. Yeah, I mean, he he is the original what Admiral Akbar was talking about with It's a Trap. Yeah. Like, any, anytime Jordan is inviting you to do something, like, with Barkley golfing before the finals, so he'd stay out of the way. With all the guys he invited to the Jordan Dome just so he could get scouting reports. Right. Was, I mean, Space Jam, like, there's always going to be an ulterior motive, always uh, him trying to get a leg up in some way, shape, or form. But, yeah, it's like, you can't win. I mean, it even shows in the in the interviews, they're talking to Reggie Miller about it, and he goes, those were some of the best games. Yeah. And it's like, 
dude, you have no idea what you just did. It, it's tough, though, because, yeah, at the same time, like, if you're, you know, a competitor, one of the best players in the league, you're going to be drawn to of course. playing against the, you know, the other elite of the league. So it's, yeah, they're, they're going to want to go, plays right into Jordan's hands. And, yeah, we saw how he took that and how he was able to get back to being the best basketball player in the world after a foray into baseball. They, just the ability to come back after two years or so off, whatever, whatever it ended up being exactly. Um, and in his fifth game back, drops 55 on the Knicks, who were basically the second best team behind the Bulls in the East throughout that era. I mean, they were no slouch for sure. And Jordan... <laughs> Just as if it was nothing, as you know, as if he had just come back from a, like a Dennis Rodman forty-eight hour Vegas vacation, just shaking off the rust and playing out of his mind. The Knicks were so good for basically the timeline of this documentary, but they have been nothing but a punchline. Right, and we will see that Pippen on Patrick Ewing dunk probably three more times. The fact, the fact that that came after. Uh, Scotty basically quit on the team, as they like to call it. I yeah. feel like they blew that up a little bit. Like, yeah, he definitely he deserves some flack for what he did. But at the same time, it's not like he just refused to play the rest of the series. And like you tweeted, it is such a bad look that Ku Coach not only nailed it, but it was money. It was, it was so, so pure. Good. Yeah. Um. I. It's yeah. But it, to to return to finish the thought real quick to return from. That happening and then dunk on Ewing and just absolutely sun him is, whew, that is quite the return. But that's the thing. Like, those are the two lasting images from that series. Right. The Knicks won the series. Yeah. <laughs> and no play from that. And like, that's, yeah, that's, that is just such an accurate summary of New York Knicks basketball. I but, know. sorry, go ahead. There was, I think there was a stat. I can't remember if this is correct. If it was with or without. I th- I don't know if it was during the 90s or with MJ, but something along the lines of like the Knicks were 6 and 16 against the Bulls in the playoffs. And it's like one of those series they went up 2-0 and then lost four straight, and then the other one, if it was just the, in the 90s, they won when Michael Jordan was gone. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's like the Bulls with LeBron, really. Right. Like it's it's the same same hill you can't quite get over. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean in that Knicks series, you, you can't even even though Kukoc hits the shot, I I have to empathize with Pippen because he is you know it's it's been kind of he's been waiting behind Jordan right. forever. Like he is one of the you know five best players in the league that year, MVP candidate, dream team guy. Like there's no question that he is the cream of the crop. Um, and then Kukoc, who there was already some. Animosity with, yeah. Because he's a, a Jerry Krause guy um, coming over rookie season. Less proven and still, I believe, is how I'm making more money than Pippen because yeah. that atrocious contracts. There's there's a lot of underlying feelings of disrespect there, so I, I get it, but it's just like you're you're not going to look good. Like even, right. even if you're justified, it's just, yeah. easy Easier to say now just sitting here not being in the situation at all, but I mean that's – there, there's no way where you do that and come off looking good. It It's a tough overall situation, just the optics of it in general, but then, like you said, the underlying animosity between Scotty and basically the entire organization. Um, it 
I, I just wonder, like, what was what was the end game? Like, if they miss, Scotty's like, oh, well, you guys need me, or you know, you're still you still lose a playoff Probably. game. Like, what what good does it do? Yeah. I don't think there was a ton of like right. It was a very put into that more like heat of the moment. But yeah. yeah, I agree. That's yeah. That, I mean, he's sort of lucky in that sense that right didn't have to have a, a follow up conversation. It was like it was a conversation after a win and not you know going oh, down three zero. A heartbreaking loss where you're yeah. supposed to inbound the ball. Exactly. Um, and then baseball happens. Just yep. once again, Jerry Krause coming out of this looking like. Just the the worst human uh, with the start, Craig Sager, just getting so offended at the the backstabbing question when he had told Phil, this is going to be your last year no matter what. Um, Way to go, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Just big J's sniping at each other. Just an all-time uh, screen grab right there. <laughs> Way to go, Craig. But um, this is some of the best press the Sox have gotten in a while like people yeah. forget they're actually good in the 90s like in the alcs against the jays who were very good loaded yeah um but for for jordan to to walk away and just go to double a obviously not putting up great numbers but when you consider this is a guy who's been the best best basketball player on the planet hasn't played baseball in over a decade and still going out and, and producing and have, have a guy like Tito, Terry Francona as his manager right. who speaks so highly of him. Like I, I said, it's pretty, pretty impressive accomplishment. It was, especially considering how bad his swing looked, <laughs> but oh my God, yeah. they're, they're talking. I saw a couple interesting tweets. One of them was like, Terry Francona is basically the Kevin Bacon of baseball where he is just slightly separated from everyone. And he's been yeah. everywhere. Um, another one was imagine Michael Jordan strolls into the box. He's hitting 188, and he just rips a homer <laughs> off of you. <laughs> like, goddamn! And you just watch that swing, and it's like, it's like a young kid learning how to hit for the first time. Because the the main thing I see out of it is he wants to eight like swing through the ball and hold his follow through, basically. But his head is always staying down, which obviously is good practice. But it's like, yeah. It was. It it's was just so happy. awkward. I was. I was shocked that like they showed an actual home run because it, it right. looked like that was just almost like Ty Cobbians. Like you're you're just hitting singles, maybe doubles. That's it. Like if you make contact. He had. Uh, I think it was twenty one extra base hits and like sixty six singles that season. Yeah. <laughs> and and eighteen times he was caught stealing. Yeah. That which, I, I was. I was about to say, until the caught stealing part, Ozzy would have loved that small ball approach. Right. Singles all day. Yeah, but at the same time, he did still have 30 stolen bases. As and 50 a, RBI. Like, yeah. all things considered, this was an outstanding season. <laughs> you know, you could say what you want about hitting 200, but when you look at the underlying optics of it, the fact that he was a basketball player and hadn't played baseball basically since he was 16 or 17... And just comes out of nowhere, does one minor off season, and then just practices all the time, and all of a sudden hits two hundred at double A. That's yeah. pretty impressive. And the only reason they started him like higher than they wanted to is because they needed enough space for the media, right? Which... Like, what what would he have hit in, hit at single A? I mean, you would hope better. Two thirty, two forty. I mean, that's pretty. That's better than Tebow. Yeah, and that that is definitely a big time uh, sports what if. 
Uh, if the if the strike doesn't happen, if Jordan can yeah you know continue to play and develop because he he did have a, a phenomenal uh, Arizona Fall League season that year um, after the the actual minor league season leading into spring training the next year um, and then yeah not wanting to be a scab all right I'll just go back to being the best basketball player of all time not a bad fallback I'll go to my side gig which just yeah. so happens to be you know where I rule the world. But that's that. That was probably the most tough scene for just the sport of baseball. I love baseball, um, not as much as Pat and Nick over at Shoeless Goat, but big, big Sox fan, big baseball fan. But basically, being like this man has done nothing but play baseball for eighteen months, and because of this, he is just now out of shape. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's tough. He cannot hang. Like, yeah, it's the NBA, and he's probably logging a ton of minutes. But it is a very tough look when Michael Jordan says, you know, I had to work out some muscles that I haven't been using for a while, like my shoulders and my chest. And it's like, yeah. oh, man, not not ideal. And just some, yeah, some of the some of the clips from that uh, that magic series, um, you know, the the one playoff series after, you know, the start of the dynasty that that he is on that the Bulls end up losing, um, obviously. You can throw asterisks on there of you know not having a full season to to play or anything, but yeah, he just looked absolutely dead at times, and that's yeah, not not a ringing endorsement of of the sport of baseball, but it is what it is. He he made it back. I think that's all that really matters. And baseball and the White Sox got a decent shine outside of that. Yeah, and if it comes back this year, I've I have high hopes. It's kind of kind of coming full circle here. It's the the Good Sox news. Are here. The Sox are ready to get back to that level again. The Bulls, of course, are not anywhere yeah. close to where they are in this documentary. It's uh, it's funny, too, because now people can say, well, if you just look at baseball after that, it seems that these guys can basically come off of the quarantine where they, they aren't doing a ton and just be ready to roll. Yeah. And, well, it, I guess it gives you hope in that it regard. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, – do you have anything else on on these episodes? Uh, I don't think so. Just yeah. watching him dominate his teammates mentally, physically, oh emotionally was great. But that, I mean, that's what you, it's not what you want, I guess, necessarily in a teammate, but it's, it's not a bad quality in my opinion, because you want someone that's going to push you. And like, if, if Michael Jordan isn't there, how many of these guys' careers go the same trajectory? Probably not many. Yeah, it's it's a necessity sometimes because obviously you you want everyone to or Michael wants everyone to have the same yep intrinsic motivation that he does, which is just not realistic because he he's a freak of nature and you know mentally and physically. So and he's got a competitive issue or a competitive yeah. addiction. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that that just rears its head when you have that that montage of him just laying into people. Scott Burrell was on the Bulls for one year. Yeah, he takes so much black. <laughs> this documentary just call, calling him a hoe multiple times. Multiple just, times. Some great screen grabs. Um, but yeah, that's like Jordan. Jordan got upset a lot that his his teammates were too nice. Essentially, yeah. And credit to Scott Burrell, he takes everything in stride. He yeah. seems like such a nice, like fun loving guy. And that he got a ton out of it, so good for him. Yeah, he just the world now knows that in the late nineties he was an alcoholic. Yeah. So okay. Apparently not an issue, according nope. to his wife. 
Um, so in the world of college basketball right now, um, not a ton has happened in the last week besides, of course, the, the budding Wake Forest-Kentucky rivalry. Um, I really hope they get a, they get a home at home on the books because that'll, that'll be electric. Um, but another, another blue blood program at Duke now involved in some drama with, you know, all world talent Zion Williamson getting sued by his former marketing agents. Um, and now kind of asking him to, to go under oath and answer some questions and, uh, basically admit that he received quote money benefits, favors, or other things of value, unquote, to attend Duke, which I think most people have had some suspicion that there were some benefits at play, just just keeping an eye on Zion's recruitment and other allegations that have come out about other schools who are recruiting him, like Kansas, offering him money. So if you're going to Duke, you would assume they offered more. No, the brotherhood, Um, man. The brotherhood (laughs) is above all else. Yeah, the... uh, that's that's what they're calling it these days. One year at Duke is invaluable because you get the brotherhood for life. While hey, one get, year at Kansas gets you a hundred grand. You get twenty five percent of that Duke degree. That'll that'll take you far in life. It does. It really does. Uh, again, it's it's great because it's it's great in the fact of Twitter gets to make the brotherhood jokes now because that's what Duke's like squeaky clean reputation was based on. Essentially, is that like oh you come. You come to Duke over every other blue blood because you want to be part of something bigger and like all these guys have gone pro and they come back and they'll talk to you and help you out. And it's, you know, not like any other program does this, but it's like a brotherhood. Um, And now to see Coach K, who is seemingly so clean in in a dirty sport, get potentially dragged through this. I mean, we'll have to see if he gets deposed zion gets deposed or not but there are questions in there i think like six or eight of them that basically are saying the same thing a bunch of different ways but it's like did you get paid to go to duke and if when that happens and he has to answer it's going to be a bombshell that we've been waiting for seemingly since the fbi announced that they were taking down the sport of college basketball which they did not do been a while now um but yeah it's 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 emblematic of coach k's philosophy change and transition over time because he's from the bob knight school and bob knight's a guy who would rather i don't know a a family member or close friend die rather than break an ncaa rule right he was so strict about that and that's kind of how coach k started out but then you get to the one and done era and just like k's were Recruiting changed dramatically to try to match the Kentuckys yep. of the world and starting getting one-and-done prospects. You have to assume that, you know, the, the more nefarious side of that was, was starting up, too. Um, that the actual selling I, of the Brotherhood wasn't working yeah. and you had to add a little extra. Yeah, there was, there was, a, little, there, there was a little bit of buying going on, too, right. in terms of handing out money and benefits, you would think. I mean, I I struggle to see a reality in which you know nothing impermissible was was given um i i just i just don't see a reality where where that's the truth yeah it's again like i said if if zion gets deposed there's basically no and and actually has to sit down and answer these questions there's nothing he can say that gives it that shines a good light on duke he can plead the fifth that is a terrible answer. He could say yes. 
that is a terrible answer for Duke. Or he could say no, but at that point he's potentially perjuring himself. So it's like, what is, you know, there's no good way for Duke to get out of this other than Zion settling beforehand. And I don't know whether or not he'd still have to answer questions because I'm not a uh, a lawyer of any sort. Dis- full disclaimer. Yeah, I I would have to echo that myself. Um, but but yeah, they from from the question list that was released on Twitter, they they have pretty much every angle covered. Whether it's coming from Zion or his mom or his stepfather, you know, being the one requesting these benefits, like mm-hmm. he's he's gonna have to answer for that. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see a if you know it gets to this point, kind of what kind of answers we get out of of Zion and B. If there is, you know, basically admission of guilt, what what the NCAA does with that? Um, My guess is nothing. Yeah, call me crazy again. It's, it's Duke, so I the the first the first big time basketball program to get you know whatever the the equivalent of of a death penalty in this situation is, then I'll start to expect more. It's like what we just talked about with Louisville last week, like waiting for the first head to roll essentially, and then. I will think that they will be more aggressive in pursuing, you know, punishment from more of these big programs. I mean, not even a death penalty, but just something. It would ever, yeah, like it would have, any not, sort not of punishment. Not literally a death penalty, right? Right. Style, but like whatever, whatever the far end of the spectrum is going to be in this situation. Yeah, I think. I mean, just just for comparison's sake, Seton Hall lost a scholarship this year in recruit in recruiting because uh, they're one of the assistant coaches during Torian Thompson's transfer was allegedly tampering uh, by talking to his mom, who was a friend of his, whatever it was. I mean, just by calling back and forward, they lost the scholarship. Now we're talking about Louisville with hookers uh, paying players and then Duke and Kansas all paying players. And we're going to see and UNC with fake classes and all this stuff. And we're going to see maybe nothing for all of them. I mean, come on. Yeah. And I mean, if that comes out after the season that Seton Hall just had, maybe they don't get any any punishment there. It's possible. Um, yeah, so I mean, we'll we'll have to see what comes out of it. I'm always going to assume that the NCAA is going to do nothing until they do something. So, right. Um, we are we are getting close to the point where name, image, and likeness can be profited off of, but it's it's a pretty convoluted mess, and it's going to be a while before we actually have a working model of that. So. Until they get that, you know, into the rules, essentially, I feel like we'll keep hearing more of these cases, um, players trying to get money, schools offering money, um, and yeah, it's it's up to the NCAA to, to do or not do anything about it. I have zero faith in whatever the NCAA <laughs> chooses to do. What they yeah, should do is make a decision and then do the opposite of it. That seems to be the best course of action 95% of the time. Yeah, just take a take a straw poll of public opinion. Right, literally, then, just go on Twitter on the verified NCA at NCAA account and just make a poll, and that's what we'll decide. Yeah. Um, last thing this week, we're, we're still kind of hoping that that sports happen is scheduled, especially you know football being the the big one next. Basketball obviously have a little more time to to get everything situated before that, but. I know your conference, the uh, the Big East, coming out and and making a, a sweeping proclamation, um, Val Ackerman, that if if campuses aren't open, if students aren't on campus, then you know no sports of any kind will happen. And I mean, I I think that that basically makes sense. Yeah, 
I don't understand how or why we would allow student athletes to perform, you know, play sports if there are no people on campus. Because, like the NCAA loves to say, they are students first, athletes second. And if the rest of the student population isn't there, sure, they can take online classes, but what is the point? of forcing them, or making, I guess not forcing them, but having them play uh, these games. The bigger issue, I think, is when we get down to the individual states, because there can be situations in the Big East where someone like, a state like New Jersey may be more strict because they're a hotbed or epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, and they may have to say, and, and Ackerman said, that I believe June or July was the decision date. Um, but yeah, if, if June or July, by June or July, the states haven't decided that they're probably not going to go ahead with it. That said, there is there are things in progress of like hybrid where certain students are allowed on campus, which would allow student athletes to come back and then you can still play or participate. But there is a possibility that a state like New Jersey or New York can shut down college campuses and then the question is what do those schools and co- or what do those conferences do about those schools do they just go on without them or what is the deal yeah that's that, that's kind of where we're at here because is mark emmer came out basically saying something similar like we might see you know with football season you know depending on different local restrictions you know we might see teams starting the season at different times and then there's a there's a whole host of issues that that correspond with that. But I mean, in any sport, if there's going to be you know very different policies state to state, like it, it's going to be almost impossible for sports to happen because you know there there are home teams and away teams, and you have to right. travel and all these other things. Um, and that that's issues we're seeing even with you know professional sports like PGA um, is trying to come back this summer and they they've addressed kind of the actual courses in, in those states being open, but they haven't really addressed any of the travel or logistics issues that is normally planned out well in advance. And they're trying to, to throw that together last minute. So, you know, the more we're, we're kind of taking a wait and see approach, the more that we're waiting for, you know, states to do something before college sports do something off of that. It's going to be, I mean, I'm afraid it's going to be an absolute clusterfuck trying to, put anything together for the fall season, which hurts me deeply to say, but we, we kind of need to, to get a better, a firmer plan in place if, if possible, but that's difficult at a time like this. There is also a rule or bylaw, I don't know which of it it is, but uh, in the NCAA where conferences need at least six member schools to play a season. So it is possible to go ahead without some of these teams, but you can't, you have to have at least six that are open to playing. And uh, I mean, it's interesting too, because there are these huge venues that some of these schools play in, uh, you know, let's say St. John's in Madison Square Garden or Villanova in the Wells Fargo Center, Seton Hall Prudential Center. Are they going to play there still? Or are they just going to play on campus? Because those are completely different buildings. So I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen. My hope is that these states can all figure out a way to or these schools at least can figure out a way to put safety above all else, but also figure out how we're going to get these seasons played. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of uncertainty, unfortunately. And I mean, it's, it's kind of like all of the, uh, 
all the press conferences with college football coaches being asked if the season will happen. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. Right. We we unfortunately still have no idea. We can we can hope, and that's that's pretty much it at this point. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, but with more more professional leagues around the world and, and some stuff in America, UFC um, Saturday night kind of first foray into mm-hmm. you know close contact sports. So that's something we'll see if there's any fallout from that. Um, but to start. We'll see. It we'll is. see how quickly the momentum can pick up getting into to team sports and getting something into place ahead of hopefully a, as normal as possible college football season. I'm I'm still hopeful. I'm holding I'm holding out the optimism, but I do. you've I, got to lay seeds in your mind now of there may not be a regular looking sports season, or they may there may not be sports in the fall, and that's just something we might have to deal with. We're gonna to have to make compromises, yes. no matter what. Hundred um, so, percent. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of you know situation the cliche expect the worst, hope for the best. Right. Um, well, we'll see what happens. Um, on that positive note, we <laughs> got a uh, got as he said, Nick Seisloft, uh, Illinois State Indiana legend, joined the program. Uh, he is he did join us from overseas. He, he's stuck in the Canary Islands right now, so. If there are any audio issues, it's because of that. Yep. So apologies in advance. Um, but enjoy the interview, and we will uh, see you next week. We now welcome on Illinois State, Indiana legend, Nick Zeisloft, joining us uh, from the Canary Islands. Uh, so let's start there. What's, uh, what's life like right now? How are you keeping busy, staying in shape? Appreciate you guys having me on, first off. But, um, yeah, the, uh, the islands, it's, um, it's pretty calm here. Uh, it's not as crazy as like Madrid or the, uh, you know, bigger cities in mainland Spain because it's so isolated. Um, they were able to uh, limit a lot of the cases. Um, I don't even know the total number on my island. I'm on the island of Tenerife. Um, I'm in the main city, Santa Cruz de Tenerife. Um, I don't know the total numbers here. Haven't really looked them up, but in the Canary Islands as a whole, I think there's seven or eight total islands. Um, it's, it's a low number. So for the most part, uh, just living at home, staying in shape. They, the team gives us some bands, dumbbells, kettlebells, foam rollers. Um, they brought in a stationary bike too. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. This week we've been able to start, um, professional players have been starting to be able to train more, um, getting out. Uh, we actually, uh, are allowed to go to the beach now and do some workouts there. That helps. Um, and we're starting to try to get back into practice here soon. That was going to be my next question. Is there like an end in sight or any, any news on, uh, if things are going to be opening up, obviously it's like you mentioned, it's a little more of an isolated situation for you guys. Yeah, for us, um, it's kind of like what I hear in the States, every state's doing something different. Well, every region in Spain Mm -hmm. is kind of doing a little bit of like the government says one thing, the regional government say another. We actually just got um, tested, uh, all the team staff today. Um, the Canary Islands is allowing um, businesses privately to, uh, to privately test their, um, their employees if they want to. So we did that today, get the results back here soon, hopefully, and hopefully we can start doing some individual workouts um, and maybe in you know, a few weeks, uh, team workouts, um, because, 
uh, they're trying to finish the season. They're still trying to do that, obviously, while I'm here. Um, and there's, uh, there's hopefully they want to do a 12 team tournament, but we only have so much time remaining, uh, to get that done. in. so understood. Um, Let's let's switch back gears. We mentioned you started at Illinois State before heading over to Indiana. Take us through the recruitment process because I know when you got there, Illinois State had a coaching change, I believe, as you got in with Dan Muller's first season and then obviously Dana Ford and Luke Yaklich on that staff. So a lot of interesting guys in the college basketball world on that coaching staff. So take us through the recruitment and then, you know, the decision and, and what it was like playing there the first couple of years. Mm, for sure. The uh... – I was recruited by uh, Tim Jankovic's staff, um, and I actually did play one year with them um, yeah. before Coach Jankovic went down SMU. It was my redshirt year. Uh, I chose – I was just so small, skinny, not fast enough. You know, I just needed, I just needed a year to, to develop, um, and I was glad that Coach Jank gave me the opportunity um, to decide that on my own. So that was um, a great first year, obviously. Love Coach Jank and his staff. Coach Parham was a main recruiter of mine and Coach Judson as well mm-hmm. um and then kind of you know Jankovic such a good coach he got what he deserved and pushed me to be the best I could be and coach Yaklich in that last year I had there was um was unbelievable and to see where he's went to you know from there Michigan Texas now the UIC head job um you know coach Yaklich haven't have he has energy like no other same energy the entire time I, I don't even mean he drinks coffee it's just it built in him so um, it, I had a lot of great coaches in college. Um, you know, I was blessed to be recruited by Coach Parham and Judson and Jankovic to get there, and that was you know, the start of, of a lot of great things for me um, in this basketball. High energy coach was kind of a theme during your college career, obviously. Just <laughs> over to, to Indiana, um, Coach Crean, one of our favorites, kind of a, a white whale on this podcast. Um, you, you graduated from Illinois State, going through the, the grand transfer market what were were those conversations with coach Crean like um how did he he sway you to come over to indiana and and once you got there kind of no disrespect to illinois state but a little bit of a transition bigger stage how long do you think it took you to to kind of get back on there well um man I, coach Crean from the get-go just was really adamant about about getting me into the program um he loved what he saw on film um and just hearing what he said and how much confidence he had in me at that time in my career, he probably had more confidence in my, in my game and where it could go than I did in my, um, and just hearing that from him and hearing about his, you know, development of players, um, and his attention to detail. I mean, he watched so much film. He could, he could tell me why, why was I wearing a sleeve like this game versus that game? Why did, why did coach, uh, Muller wear these shoes or that shoes like why did this fan cheer for the it was crazy where he like really knew every single thing that happened and I was like why are you looking at all this stuff but it all comes down to you know the winning mentality that he has and the attention to detail um, and it was you know just just from the get-go he he um, I could just tell how much he wanted to get me there and and I always wanted to go to Indiana as it is my dad went there um, I love I grew up a Hoosier fan uh, that was the dream school for me to go to. I actually applied um, at when I was at LT um, to go there uh, just to see if I'd get in, and I did. Um, but I already knew I was going to Illinois State, so uh, you know, it, Indiana was a was a great opportunity for me, and um, you know, it just it just fell through right in the right in the right time at the right spot. So, might have missed the second part of your question there. Was there something else you asked there? Yeah, just just kind of once you got on campus, transitioning. Oh, from yeah, the transition. Surprisingly, it wasn't that big of a – it wasn't that hard. 
um, I played against big time competition in the Valley as it is. So, uh, you know, a lot of people ask like, how long does it take to get acclimated to the big time versus the Valley? Well, we were playing teams like Wichita State and Creighton. We won in the road at, at Creighton um, when they were ranked 14th in, in the nation one time when I was at Illinois State. And, you know, playing those big games, it's, it's just, you know, you have to just bring it every night in the big time. You don't have, uh, sorry to say it, Drake's and SIU's. Somebody's got to be at the bottom, right? You don't have those those teams in the in the Big Ten. <laughs> I mean, we lost at Penn State my senior year, the year we won the Big Ten. Like one of our three losses in the Big Ten was at Penn State. Like, is what happens. <laughs> it's another uh, another one of our our working bits is the the behemoth that is Bryce Jordan Arena. So Penn State obviously a little bit better this year, but it's always interesting. Does it throw you off though that like? going to a place like Penn State, knowing they have all these fans, but not really seeing it in the basketball program? Yeah. It, it, Penn State's just a tough one. We, uh, we, I hate to say it, and it does, it does play an, an effect, but we had Iowa coming in three days after that game at home, and we yeah. knew like that was the game we had to get in. And, but we, at the same time, were focused. We knew this was going to be a tough one at Penn State. Mm-hmm. We knew it because, because of all the factors. Sometimes you just play too many mind games in your own self, like, and that causes you to just not play the right way as a team. Um, but thank goodness we only had three losses and we still got it out, outright. <laughs> and that one didn't come down to haunt us. So um, I'll take two wins against Iowa and I'll give that Penn State one to them every day. So I, that, that Iowa was a good bounce back game. I remember us front row under the basket. Um, you guys showed out for that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you, you guys had a, a ton of big games that 2016 season, Big Ten Championship. Um, I mean, you were you were on the last team to beat Purdue. You are on the last IU team to beat Kentucky. I know, obviously, IU's on a little bit of a schneid right now against Purdue, but uh, what was your experience in, in both of those rivalries? And I mean, looking at IU now, what, what do they have to do to get back up? Well, well first I'll say this. If you have... 2K ratings on Purdue players in a regular Big Ten game. And there are, let's just say there are, there are 75 on the 2K rating. I don't even play 2K. I'm just making this up. Yeah. They all go to 110 against IU. <laughs> all their ratings from the best player on the team to the worst player that shouldn't even play in the game. So that's how crazy that game one is. Just, just because you just know they're going to, they're coming in to take a head off. Um, and Kentucky's a little different, you know, there's, that's just, you know, two blue chip programs right there um, going at it. And I mean, Kentucky's had it a much better, uh, much better, you know, success recently than, than Indiana has as a whole. But um, no one on that, no one on either team had played against each other. Uh, and we didn't really know each other very well. Um, it wasn't like Purdue and Indiana were in state. So we kind of, we, we knew each other in, in, in Purdue and Indiana rivalry. And I, like I said, it just was, you know, so intense because of how much they, they wanted to take your head off. But no one on either team in the Kentucky game had played against each other. So it was just a weird one until we tipped the game, or actually a little bit beforehand, uh, some things started going off in the, uh, in, in the, in the pregame warm-ups. But, um, but it wasn't until then that we really were like, oh, this is, this is it. And then until after the weekend when we found out that our second-round game was the most watched um, of the tournament so far. Um, you could just tell like that's that's the 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 power of fans, how much they love that, you know, that rivalry for sure. Yeah. I mean, 
those games are always high energy. You see Mackey Arena always gets up for, for Indiana and Assembly Assembly Hall's always up and they're always ready to go. It's not I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's too big a difference when Purdue comes in, but there's certainly definitely an edge that you oh, see yeah. for that one. For sure. The uh I mean Assembly Hall is always up. Yeah. Um still by far the the best arena I've ever played in. Um and I put uh, then again I played in the garden. Sorry, that's a tough one to say. Um <laughs> but my favorite one to play in. Okay. What is the, so I guess it kind of lends itself to it, but what is the toughest or uh, best arena in the Big Ten on the road to go to? Um, from a winning standpoint, because we won in these two places, was uh, uh, Carver, Hawkeye, and uh, yep. the Crisis Center. Mm-hmm. Um, both great games. And whenever you win in a big atmosphere like that, um, I've rewatched those games so many times. Yeah, those are the two of the best ones. Um, the, tough, the toughest because the refs, I'm just I'm just calling a spade a spade, is Wisconsin. Uh, toughest from the fans' standpoint is with uh, sorry uh, Michigan State and Purdue. Um, we got screwed at Wisconsin. That's probably of all the of all the losses I have. The North Carolina one hurts, but the yeah. Wisconsin one is almost even worse. Um, Probably, probably the toughest. So um, the Cole Center, you just get screwed every time. It doesn't matter what happens. With you there, I mean, Assembly Hall gets a lot of flack from opponents about being the the quote unquote Hall of Calls, but I mean, it's been what like twenty five years or so since since Indiana's won in Wisconsin, and I when Nigel Hayes goes to the free throw line nineteen times in a game, and our team as a whole goes fourteen times, you know something's wrong. Yeah, it's. It is another theme of this show that college officiating is not only lopsided more often than not, but it's just so inconsistent that throughout a game, you'll see one Mm -hmm. end of the floor, you know, uh, whether it's a reach in or a bump on the baseline get called and on the other end, all of a sudden it's, it's play on. It's, it's tough. That's a tough one. And I have family in Madison all over. So I had a ton of people there and um, the year before I had a good game against them. And then I played like crap when we almost won in overtime and it's just like what is happening like how we were so much better than them too we had just beat them weeks before and we played that we beat them on their own game two two or three weeks before that in assembly like in in the 50s we don't play like that mm-hmm. we beat them at their own game and then go up there play a little bit more of our style but still a little bit of theirs and just just couldn't pull it out it was a tough one yeah talk to us a little bit like what would you put down as your best game Obviously, like, you know, you can read through the stat lines, but not often is that indicative of what you personally feel is your best game. So tell us, like, where, where you think you played your best or felt the best about your game uh, during that season. During that season? Okay. Um, from a points of getting hot perspective mm-hmm. uh, at Minnesota. Okay. Um, I got really hot in that game, and I also had struggled for, like, the first five or six Big Ten games of the season that year. Um, but what I loved most about that game, it wasn't even that I got hot. It was that some guys just played really bad that day, and we had such a good team that we that some uh, I just picked up the slack that day, mm-hmm. and we, you know, just um, handled the adversity of the first half and ended up winning, you know, a crucial game on the road. Um, but one of the probably the Iowa one, and I didn't even feel like I I only had 11 points in that game, but it was just the the way. I played with my teammates and they played with me like our togetherness 
and how calm we were down the stretch when they went on their big run on senior night and then to win the Big Ten championship. Like, winning's all that mattered to me. Right. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I just hated to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so winning that first championship, the, the biggest championship I've really ever won, um, that's just the best game for me personally. Nice. Uh, professionally, I would assume your best game was in Lithuania where you hit 12 threes, you got 41 points. Um, obviously, you're, you're a phenomenal shooter every night, but on a night like that, uh, how, how early in a game can you kind of tell that you know, it's going to be one of those nights? Well, I missed my first easy one, too. I might have missed my first two easy ones, actually. And it was the first time my parents had came to come to visit me in, uh, in Europe that year. It was the only game um, they were at in the, in the league um, when they came to visit me. And I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm going to play bad in front of them. Like, then I, then I hit like a you know, quick little shot fake, one, one dribble pull up, and then it was over after that. I, didn't, I hit eight straight. And it wasn't until I think I hit four in the first half, eight in the second half. Once, once I hit my – the corners are always my heat checks. So when I went, there was one play I would like offense rebound, guy kicked it out to me or no, no, he, I came, I just went to go get the ball, just dribble handoff. And I just took one dribble to the right corner and fade out of bounds and made it. At that point, I just knew it was over. I knew that that was when I was just like, I was in the zone and I knew the ball was going to go in. So um, it took, it took eight. <laughs> Answer your question. It took eight. And that, before that, it was really, ah, you're just, you're, you're just playing. You're trying to win. <laughs> Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about the transition, obviously. You, you played a little bit in the uh, G League and obviously over in C's now. What, it, what was that transition like and I guess the process of going from college to the professional ranks? Yeah, the games are much different. Um, style of play is much different from uh, NBA, college, and overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone usually touches the ball overseas um, and the passing and the cutting um, – and just the reading of the defense is is very crucial. And in the NBA and in the G League, usually you have like one or two primary ball handlers, and they facilitate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that in Europe some, but you just see it a lot less. It's it's like the it's like the hockey assist pass is the most important assist in in Europe, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas the point guard makes or the the, the playmaker, depending on you know what time type of team it is in the NBA. Um, usually, you know, makes the final pass and play there. So it's, uh, it's different in that case. The defenses rotate. You can stay in the paint you know, in Europe. Um, and the rotations are so much different. Like, in ways, in ways they like, why would you do that? But mm-hmm. it works, too. So, um, you know, it's just a different style. And, and um, for my skill set, Europe definitely makes more sense. Um, but – then again, the better players you play with, the better you play too. So it's, right. you know, it goes hand in hand with that. Uh, one, of the, one of the more intriguing things to me about your career is, is your time in Lithuania overlapped with when the balls were there. <laughs> um, I, I know that that got more attention in the States, um, obviously. The, the oh, much. They were on the worst team in the league. Yeah. <laughs> did, was that just kind of a, another game for you guys, or did you notice any, any extra oh. attention there? Heck no, it wasn't. It was all hype. Like, they had their whole – our team must have got paid for that to let because it was a home game. They must have paid our, our club something to let the cameras come in. Um, but arena was packed, and their team sucked. Like, it should never have 
it should have never even have been a game, but like, or fans should you really even like been there because we weren't playing that great at this time. Um, in Lithuania, we turned it on in the February and later months in the season. Mm-hmm. We played in early January in this game, and it, it, I just couldn't believe how many fans were there for that. What it was, hey, whatever their marketing is is doing a great job, and their their business has its own niche or whatever. I'll props to them and respect that, but. Um, the team that they were on was not great. And those those games that they had 40, 50, whatever points in were against like some really awful competition and really young kids. And they were all like, it was like an all-star game effect. So it wasn't like these guys were balling out in pros. Now, LaMelo, when he was 16 there, it was just too small to play. Yeah. I've seen him play now. The dude actually can freaking play. And he's bigger. He's grown into his body, obviously. Leandro at the time was actually like physically solid enough to play. Um, so I mean, he, he held his own, but it was just a, a circus show with everything, with how our fans reacted and uh, all that. It was I can't believe it actually happened when I was there. <laughs> what are the so, odds, you know? Right. Uh, speaking of all this, I guess talented players. I'll I'll call the the balls or at least Lamelo talented. Um, I mean, they're all talented. Don't get me wrong; they're all good players. Yeah. Who who was your most talented or? Most talented teammate, and then I guess favorite teammate. Not not to pick favorites or anything, but just out of curiosity, since you've played with so many interesting players throughout these past couple of years. Well, the time I had with the Pacers was probably the most talented I've ever played with anybody. Mm-hmm. So Paul George is probably like that's I mean the guy. Like, um, but it was such a short stint with them because it was just preseason. Um, I would probably say the most talented that I've really played with. Um, well. There's another one. I haven't even played in the game with him yet. But Marcelino Plertas here mm-hmm. played for the Lakers, played for Barcelona. He's he can just play. He can flat out see the see the court, and, and he's a true point guard. Um, but then again, back to what I was saying with, with like really played with, you know, for a long time, Yogi and Thomas Bryant and OG. Yeah. Those have to be it. Um, Jackie Carmichael at Illinois State too. He was a baller, and that's like my main dude too, which is crazy. Like we, I'm, I'm on Facetime with him all the time. He was just in France. He actually just got back. States a few weeks ago um like my real real close friend we lived together in Chicago this last summer um those four are probably the most talented when it comes to just athleticism skill shooting ability IQ all that toughness so what happened on the kick play with Jackie Carmichael you know I rewatch it um it it it's hard to tell. I give, I give him crap a little bit about it, even though it, it's a sore subject, obviously, because we should have beat them that year. Right. Um, but they did look intentional. It just, but why was he doing it? Why would you do it? He right. didn't mean to do it, but it looked like it was. So it just like, yeah. it was a big turning point. Um, the replays okay. didn't lend any favors either because you were hoping it looked like he got his legs taken out or, or any any sort of thing to give him like a reason to have his leg that high in the air. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. And now, I mean, Clanton Early still hit two freaking tough threes to yeah to win it anyways. Um, and yeah, that was a yeah, tough one. Really I mean, it goes back to one. what you said before, though. Missouri Valley still high caliber basketball, like battles of games and that was absolutely one of them wichita was tough and uh, it sucked that i only i didn't even get to play in the game that we did beat them the one time i even played him when i was at iu um the one time that we beat them was in the valley tournament my redshirt year i would have loved to beat those guys yeah sometime but it was so so disciplined tough and whether it came out at the end 
they still they still outed you. Mm-hmm. They were they were by far much tougher than Creighton. We knew we were going into Creighton, and like they weren't that tough. They could just score the ball. Yeah, like we knew that it was going to be a track meet with Creighton. With Wichita, is a little more disciplined, just different coaching tough. style. I think tough, gritty. Yeah. Um, last question for me. Um, I just cannot get enough of any picture of Tom Crean in Maui, whether it's Indiana or last year with Georgia. I know that was early in the season before you guys really gelled and the, the tournament itself was forgettable. Um, are there any good Crean moments in Maui or, or was he all kind of business like there? Um, yeah, there was one really good one. Um, and it really helped us kind of like learn that, that we just need to, play more together and, and play more as a team um, in one of our video sessions, but nothing like really, he, he was, he was tough on us in Maui though. <laughs> we played like crap. <laughs> um, we actually thought we were going to practice. Night. So we lost to Lake for you know, super long film session. And this is where that, that story happened. Where he, um, it, was, it was just, a, it was a really good film session for us. We had like an hour and a half film session. Uh, and then game against Rutgers the next day. No, sorry, St. John's, not Rutgers. Rutgers was in the big time. Though. St. John, nine in the morning. I'm just glad we didn't end up doing that practice. <laughs> Something clicked in the in the meeting room, the film room that day, and it just, thank goodness, because we I already was gassed as it was, and I had to start the next day because he was mad at Troy. <laughs> Maui was a, a time to... Forget, but also remember because it brought us all together. But uh, Coach Crane, man, he's he's a great guy. Love him to death. We just on just just on the Zoom with him and his family for like an hour and thirty minutes last week. So great, great guy, great family guy. I love his family. Um, you know, know his know the Harbaugh's now. Know the grandpa grandparents, Jack and Jackie. They're wonderful. They help uh, get us some Michigan tickets every once in a while because my mom and sister went there. So blessed family, blessed to be part of part of their their crew now. Yeah, I mean, for, for my money, he's the ultimate player's coach. You, you talk to anybody who's ever played, basically say the same thing. Yeah, he, uh, he cares about his players like there's his own sons, that's for sure. Last question from me, Illinois State, Indiana, square off. Who do you got? Like, who are you cheering for? Okay, I was going to say, are we talking my years? Not if, not if we're playing. Not if we're playing. <laughs> that's unfair. If, um, if you're cheering for somebody. Oh, man. That's a tough one. I've always been an IU fan. It's, it'll be tough to root against IU. Um, in that in that regard, but I like have so many close dear friends and relationships from Illinois State. Still, that's a really tough one. But um, man, it's tough. It's tough to say to have to to let Indiana lose. I, I don't like when we lose. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so that's that's probably that one. I would have to go with IU. Got it. Thank you. Go well, Nick, we really appreciate the time. Uh, this is a Nick's Ice Loft podcast now, so. <laughs> We hope you can get back to playing soon and we'll, uh, we'll be cheering you on when you do. Appreciate it guys. Thank you for having me again. And, uh, 